All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm, it's good to be together. I know we're not together, literally, but we are uniting uh, together sort of in heart and in mind and in spirit, and so it's good uh, to be able to do so. And uh, believe it or not, soon, I know I've said this a few weeks now, but soon, in some form or fashion, we're going to be able to gather somewhat near one another, perhaps in an outdoor meeting or backyards uh, developing. Uh, the governor's making some important announcements about that, so soon we'll be together, and we look forward to that, certainly. Uh, would you turn with me today in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13? Uh, Mark 13, it's going to be our third week now in this chapter, looking at this very important uh, message or sermon that Jesus gave kind of on the fly to his disciples. It's what we call the Olivet Discourse, uh, perhaps to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the, the second most uh, known or well-known uh, of Jesus' sermons or messages that he shared with others, the Olivet Discourse. And we've been looking uh, at this the last three weeks. It's recorded for us here in Mark 13. We also see it in Matthew chapter 24, and, and you can find it also in Luke chapter 21. And so in all three of those places, we can gather some valuable information uh, from the Lord uh, in regard to when these things will be. Because you remember, that was the question of his disciples back in the early verses of, uh, of Mark and Matthew. Uh, they had asked that question as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. They came to him and they said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so in our previous two gatherings, we've begun to break down Jesus' response to his disciples. And if you were with us, you know uh, that there were different periods of time during this final seven-year period of time that Jesus spoke of, that there's different periods of time within those seven years. And that's how we sort of broke our study up. And so two weeks ago, I spoke of the, the period of time that we call the church age and the very, er, very early years of the tribulation. And then last week, we looked at an event that smack dab in the middle of the tribulation called the abomination of desolation. And if you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back, watch those videos, listen to those sermons, uh, because it'll give a greater context to what we're going to talk about today. And today what we're going to do is we're going to consider the very closing years of the tribulation and then those events immediately following that tribulation period. More specifically, today we're going to look at that portion of time that is called the Great Tribulation or as it says elsewhere in the scripture, a time of great distress. And so if you have your Bibles, I would like you to follow along with me as I read. Again, we're in chapter 13, and I'm going to pick up in verse 19. Chapter 13, verse 19 begins this way. It says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Now, based on what we have been considering in our previous studies, we know this. We know that the Bible teaches that the tribulation will be a seven-year period of time. We also know that that period of time will commence 
when the Antichrist signs a peace agreement with the nation of Israel and another nation or a number of other nations. We read about that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. That's strong covenant for one week, seven years. That period of time is actually going to begin quite well for the nation of Israel. In fact, Israel will gladly sign this treaty, and they'll gladly receive the leadership of this so-called man of peace because this man, they think, has been able to do what no other world leader had been able to do uh, in all of their efforts, and that is establishing a lasting peace agreement between Israel and its neighbors. That, however, as we saw last week, will all drastically change because three and one half years or, yeah, three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to break that peace agreement and actually go and either set himself or an image of himself up there in the temple so that the people of the world could be made to come and worship him. And again, we learn that in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 31. And as we learned last week, and we're going to spend our time today considering that event, that what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation, that event marks the start of what is called the Great Tribulation. Or again, as I, I quoted earlier, the time of distress for Jacob. This period of time, Mark says this of it. He says, such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation. Matthew, in describing it, he's the one that uses the term great when he says, for there will then be great tribulation. And so, properly speaking, the Bible teaches that there's a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation and a three-and-a-half-year period of time, the last three-and-a-half years, which is properly referred to as the great tribulation. And Jesus is telling us here that it will be the most awful time in human history, even worse than the Holocaust of the 1900s. When you, and think about it, consider the massive calamities that humanity has suffered through the centuries, both natural calamities and man-made man calamities. For Jesus to say that this will be the worst time in all of human history of everything that has come before and will come after, uh, that's a terrib terribly sobering statement. Consider it, these days will be worse than the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, which killed, killed nearly a quarter of a million people. It'll be worse than the 2004 earthquake and tsunami that hit South Asia, which killed nearly 300,000 people. It'll be worse than our current coronavirus pandemic, which has already taken over 300,000 lives. It'll be worse than the 20th century wars that are said to have killed as many as 123 million combined. These are going to be dark and deadly days of great calamity. And they're the events which uh, are recorded for us in great detail in the book of Revelation. But Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. A time of tribulation greater than anything the world has ever seen in the past or even will see in the days leading up to that time in the future, days so difficult that Jesus adds that if those days were not cut short, no human being would be saved, or to say it another way, would survive. Now, verse 20 causes trouble for some Bible interpreters, uh, particularly the portion 
that makes mention there of God's elect. And so again, it says, but for the sake of the elect, he has shortened those days. And since the church is referred to as God's elect throughout the New Testament, this has caused some to conclude that the church must then be present not only in the early years of the tribulation, as we saw some hold to last week, but that they must be present at the very end of the great tribulation. And so according to this view, the great tribulation will actually be cut short for the sake of the elect with God rapturing his church so that they might meet the Lord in the air and then return with the Lord at his glorious second coming. And so let me put some of these pieces together. Last week we learned of those that uh, hold that the rapture will come before the tribulation. And we referred to those as pre, those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. And then we also learned that there are those that hold that the rapture will come in the middle of the tribulation. And we referred to those as the pre-wrath, those that hold the pre-wrath rapture view. And now, since it's the belief of this third group that the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation, this view is commonly referred to as the post-tribulation rapture of the church. And their primary argument is that verse there about God saving his elect. Now, I want to remind you that the term elect is a term that is ascribed to three different groups throughout the scriptures. And so the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 65 is referred to as God's elect. In the New Testament, the church is referred to again and again as God's elect, including where it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles, to the church. He calls them the elect. And now here we have this group referred to as God's elect, which I would suggest to you is not God's church but rather those that come to know and those that come to follow the Lord during the tribulation. To use the phrase I used last week, the so-called tribulation saints. And so there's three different groups of people from three different dispensations of God's working among the people of the earth, all of whom are referred to as the elect. And so I would suggest to you this third group is a different group from the church. And as Jesus is speaking to this group of believers here, he informs them of the great trouble that will come upon the earth. We see that in verse 20. And then he warns them, he tells them that they are to be on their guard against false Christ and false prophets. He says in verse 22, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. False prophets who will seek to lead and will lead many astray with various signs and wonder. The days of the tribulation and the great tribulation will be so dark and so difficult, difficult that people of the earth will be so desperate that they'll turn to anyone that might promise them safety in those days including these many false prophets and false messiahs that come on the scene. But notice what Jesus says here. He's going to go on to say in verse 26 that believers should expect that his appearance isn't going to be done in some quiet way or some unheralded way. But look at 26. He says, but rather in the clouds with great power and with glory. And so despite the many signs and wonders of these false messiahs and false prophets, Jesus says they should not be believed and they certainly should not be followed. 
And it brings up a good point that just because a person can perform various signs and wonders, and people do, some are charlatans, of course, but others have seemingly are performing miraculous works. And just because a person can perform great signs and great wonders, that does not automatically mean that that person is from God. We see throughout the Bible that Satan has the power to imitate the divine. In fact, Paul told us that the coming of the lawless one, now remember, that's a name for the Antichrist, that the coming of the Antichrist is by the activity with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. So Jesus told his disciples these things beforehand so that his disciples could be on their guard, as it says there, when those things do come to pass. Mark 13, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And that admonition is not just for those disciples that sat there with the Lord or those disciples that will be there at the end of time when these things are occurring, but it is for believers of every generation. All believers are to take heed, to be on our guard, lest we be led astray. And especially those that will be alive at the end of the age. Now you remember the disciples at the start of this chapter, this all came about because they asked Jesus a question. The one disciple said, wow, look at those stones, Lord, on that temple. That's amazing. And Jesus said, not one of those stones will stand upon another. And then that prompted them to ask the question, when will these things be? What will be the signs of the end of the age and the sign of your return? In verse 23, Jesus concludes his answer to the first of their question. As we transition to 24, he now begins to answer the second question, which I'll remind you is, what will be the sign of your coming? And so beginning in verse 24, he says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and, pow and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And, when, and then, I should say, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and with glory. Jesus says that that day will not be some secret hidden day. It won't be some day in which people need to be informed to come out into the wilderness. I want to show you something. Come out into the wilderness so you can see the Messiah. Jesus says that immediately before that day and immediately before his return, before he comes in the clouds with great power and glory, that the world is going to experience various cosmic catastrophes. And to go through them again, he says in 24 that the sun will, not be, dark, will be darkened and that the moon will not give its light. And then he says in the next verse, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. On your own this week, I'd like to suggest to you, read the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 8 and chapter 9. Revelation chapter 8 is the section of the scripture that addresses what is called the blowing of the seven trumpets. Now, a lot of people, even if they have a little bit of familiarity with the book of Revelation, you've heard of things like the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls uh, that are listed there or given to us there uh, in the pages of the book of Revelation. Well, chapter 8 and chapter 9 deal with the blowing of those seven trumpets. And what Jesus is describing here in Mark 13, also what we have for us in Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 21 are the blowing of the third, fourth, and fifth 
of those trumpets. And it's explained in greater detail uh, in those chapters. So I encourage you, go back and look at it, and you can read about it. Isaiah the prophet described this day. This is what he said. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. The prophet Joel, he said this. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The prophet Ezekiel has similar prophecies. Amos does as well, as does the prophet Zephaniah. Each one of them prophesied very similar things about the heavens just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. And so the return of Jesus Christ will not be some secretive event that only a select few will know about. Jesus tells us, and these prophets do as well, that he will come with great power and glory in the very heavens that just prior had been darkened and of which the stars themselves had been falling. And then he goes on in verse 27 and says, upon his return, he'll send out his angels to gather up his elect from, we'll use our vernacular, the four corners of the earth. In 27 he reads, he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. His elect that remain on the earth will join with him and those that had previously been on the earth, just as we read about in the book of Revelation. And the very next event that will occur upon the return of Jesus Christ for his saints, with his saints, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19 will be the battle of Armageddon, a term no doubt you've heard, you, perhaps you're even a little bit familiar with. Revelation chapter 19 gives us great detail of that battle of Armageddon. I'm going to start to read a little. Verse 11 of that chapter says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Of course, we're speaking of the Lord Jesus. Revelation 19 continues. It says, The armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now remarkably, as the passage goes on to tell us, rather than bowing their knee in homage to the Lord, the Bible tells us that the nations of the earth will actually gather their armies to make, to make war against the Lord. Picking up in verse 19 of chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse and against his army. And again, this is what we commonly refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon that we hear so much about in movies and the like. Let me just say two quick things about this battle. Number one, The various movie renditions of the Battle of Armageddon almost always have nothing to do with the Bible's understanding of the Battle of Armageddon. Secondly, to call this battle a battle is probably not a very good descriptor for the event because the battle is not much of a battle at all. 
According to Revelation, the revelation given to the Apostle John, the nations of the earth that seek to come against the Lord, John tells us that they were destroyed with nothing more than a word from the Lord. Not much of a battle at all. But at the conclusion of this so-called battle, what the disciples had been clamoring for, for the last three years of ministry that Jesus had been engaged with them with, this idea of when will you restore the kingdom, Lord, and can I sit on my right, on your left hand and, and on your right hand, that which they had been clamoring for will finally come to pass. Satan will be bound, and the start of the 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth will finally be realized. To quote John once more, Revelation 20, he says, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. One thousand years. That period of righteous rule that is commonly called the millennium. The awestruck world will see the Son of Man returning to the earth, not as the suffering servant that he repeatedly established himself to be during his earthly ministry, but now finally as the conquering king who has always been so since the foundation of the earth. After seven years, literally, of hell on earth, Jesus will return to this earth with the saints of heaven, and he will gather with them those who have come to him during the tribulation period of time, so that they might rule and they might reign with him. Glorious days we look forward to. Now Jesus' discourse was probably far more than the disciples had anticipated. I, I can't imagine the disciple that said, hey, check out those stones over there, thought this was the answer he was going to get. And I, I sort of picture them sort of with their eyes wide open and their mouths hanging down here. But Jesus is actually not done. He goes on, he continues, and he tells them to learn the lesson or learn a lesson from the fig tree. Starting at verse 28, he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its, leaf, out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's a perfect illustration that the Lord gives. It's a, it's a minor one. I don't even know if we would classify it fully as a parable, but, a parable, but he says, learn the lesson from the, the fig tree. And the reason why I say it's a perfect illustration is because they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, among the olive trees that are there, it was famous for its fig trees. Some of them grew to 20 or 30 feet high. And I imagine they're probably sitting underneath one of these fig trees, sort of get a little shade in the late day, and they're resting underneath this tree when Jesus makes this statement. So it's a perfect place for it, because they can just look around and see fig trees. It's also the perfect time for this reference. Because when Jesus taught this discourse, it's right there around the time, it's actually two days or so, before the Passover, which is the time of, of the year when the fig trees would be in the exact condition that Jesus is describing. Their branches would be tender and their leaves would be sprouting. And so Jesus probably looked over to a fig tree 
And he said, consider the lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. The fig tree, as with many trees, it has a very regular pattern, a pattern that it follows as long as it's healthy, year after year after year. And the pattern is the leaves appear and then summer comes. And so when you see the leaves, you know that summer is about to come. And in the same way, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about events, and he says, when you see these things beginning to happen, you know that this event is about to happen, specifically the abomination of desolation. When you see these signs appear, you know that the triumphant return of Jesus Christ is near. It's at the door, uh, as it is worded in one place. Folks, we are seeing these things begin to take place. As we looked last week, we are seeing an increase in the frequency and in the intensity of wars and rumors of wars. We are more and more taking notice of earthquakes and famine and pestilences in various places. More people died, as I said last week, in the last century as martyrs for the faith than in each of the centuries that came before it combined. Israel has been reborn uh, as of 1948. It was reborn miraculously out of the ashes. And active steps are being taken to restore the temple worship, which has been, uh, had been discontinued for nearly 1,900 years. Our world has shrunken, and everything in, is in place for a global leader to rise on the scene and institute a global government and a global economy. To quote the Luke's gospel, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now Jesus goes on in verse 30 to say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now there's been a lot of discussion as to, well, who is that generation? Which generation uh, is he exactly referring to when he says this generation will not pass away? Well, I, we know this. It cannot be the generation of Peter, Andrew, James, and John because none of them lived to see the triumphant return of Jesus spoken of in verse 26. Now, there are some that understand it to mean the generation living when the fig tree puts forth its leaves. And since Israel is regu regularly compared to the fig tree, we looked at an example of that back in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark, then the, this generation must refer to the generation that will be alive when the nation is reborn in 1948. Now that begs the question, how long then is a generation? Well, in the Bible, we have two different examples uh, describing the length of a generation. In one place, it describes it as 40 years to describe those that wandered through the wilderness. In another place, it describes it as 100 years. And so if that's the correct understanding, that would put all of these things right around the year 2048. And so this generation, perhaps that's what it means. This generation most certainly applies to the generation that would see that abomination of desolation that we learned about last week. And so if that's what Jesus is trying to communicate, well then the understanding would be is that Jesus' return won't be on some thousand or ten thousand year timetable, but rather it'll be one event right after the other event after the other event. This generation will not 
pass away without seeing these things. Maybe that's what Jesus was trying to communicate. There's actually a fourth and final alternative understanding of this phrase and the use of that word generation. And that is that it isn't meant to refer to a particular people of a particular time, but that rather it's to be understood simply as a particular people of all time. And what I mean by that is a race of people. And thus, the, the reference would then be to the Jewish people as a whole. It is interesting to note that the word that we have translated generation there, it's the Greek word genea. It's from where we get the word genealogy. And so then the understanding then would be that this is a promise by our Lord that despite all of the opposition and all of the hatred that the Jewish people have and will endure, most especially during the tribulation, it's a promise by the Lord that the Jewish race will not perish before history comes to its conclusion. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not God's chosen people, whom he has elsewhere called, referred to as the apple of his eye. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not God's people, and especially not, as Jesus adds in verse 31, his word. Now there's one final section of this discourse. It starts in verse 32. Jesus said, but concerning the day or that hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, or in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning time, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So when will all these things be? That's what people want to know. Just give me a date. When will all these things be? Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. This verse is why it's always so puzzling to me to hear of another group somewhere that has set the date or the time of Jesus' return. It's always puzzling to me when people set dates and times for the return of Christ. And it's even more shocking to me when Christians believe them. Let me just say this very clearly. If you come across a Bible teacher that begins to set dates for Jesus' return, that's a Bible teacher that you should stop listening to. Because either they are right or Jesus is right. And frankly, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. This verse here about no man knows the day or the hour, this is one of the reasons why I adhere to the pre-tribulation rapture understanding that we have been talking about. For if I believed that the rapture was at or shortly before the abomination of desolation, that view that I called last week the pre-wrath rapture view, then all I would need to do is begin marking the date from the Antichrist signing of the seven-year peace agreement, and then I would know that the day and the hour would be no more than 1,260 days away. Similarly, if I held to the post-tribulation view of the rapture, well, then I would be able to know exactly when the return of Christ was, for as we have seen, it's going to be exactly 1,260 days after the abomination of desolation. But Jesus says here, no man knows the day or the hour. 
And since no man knows the day or the hour, Jesus' admonition to them is the only proper response is to be on your guard and to keep awake. In verse 33, we are ever to live on our guard that today could be the day that Jesus comes for his church. And we are ever to live on our guard that the end of things is drawing near and this world as we know it is passing away and soon all things will be made new. And so to make his point, Jesus shares an example. We see it here beginning in verse 34. He says, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake because you do not know when the master of the house is his returning. Again, what's his admonition? Look at the last two words of verse 37. It's stay awake. And so because of the uncertainty of the hour when he will come back to the earth as his servants, we are ever to be waiting, ever to be watching, and you'll notice there, ever to be working. And so while we're waiting and while we're watching, Jesus says here, we are to be working. And we know that the task that he has called every one of us as his children to is what is known as the Great Commission. He has commissioned us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded them. That's the task that he has called us to. And some of us watching this will literally go to other parts of the world. All of us are called, if you will, to go to the other side of our street or to go to the other side of the classroom or to go to the other side of the neighborhood and to talk with those and to share with those and introduce those that we come in contact with to Jesus Christ. That's the work that he has called us to do. And while we're, our eyes are looking up and we're watching and we're waiting for his return, our hands are busy, our, our legs are busy, so to speak, here on the earth so that we might bring as many with us as we possibly can. Now, over the years, I've talked to believers uh, that have ex expressed sort of an indifference to these things. Uh, remember that phrase that was used early on? Uh, to eschatology, end times discussions. And their thinking is oftentimes something to the effect of, look, these things are going to happen one way or the other, um, so why bother paying any attention to them? And, and I partially agree with that. I agree that these things will happen when they happen. But I do not agree that we should not pay them much attention. 25% of our Bibles are prophetic in nature. And the vast majority of those prophecies speak of events that have still not yet occurred. And so I think it's a mistake to ignore anywhere from 15 to 20% of our Bibles. In addition, there are, I think there are multiple positive effects on our lives uh, that, that develop, that come about because we are considering these things um, regarding the last days. John the Apostle, he wrote in one of his letters, he said, look, we know that when he appears, thinking about the return of Jesus Christ, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, we shall see him as he is. And then he says this, and everyone who has this hope within him purifies himself even as he is pure. 
So notice what John says there. John says that hoping in the return of Christ, and that means waking up today, looking expectantly that today could be the day Jesus comes for his church. John says that will have a positive effect and it will cause you to live a pure life. Because a person lives differently if they think that Jesus could come back at any moment. A person's not going to play around with sin if they truly believe that Christ might come back at any moment. So that's the first positive. Secondly, believing that Jesus could come back at any moment, it spurs us on toward evangelism. You know, typically one of the things that keeps us from evangelizing to others is, you know, not right now, I'll tell them another time. Well, if you believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment, you're going to be spurred on toward evangelism. If you truly believe that this could be the day that Jesus returns for his church and that all these things we have been considering are kicked off, then you're going to be proactive about sharing the gospel with those that you care about and those you come in contact with, that they might be rescued out of all that is coming on this world. And so that's the second positive that we gain. And thirdly, believing that Jesus could come back at any moment, it causes us to live eternally minded. If today could be the day, you are much less likely to settle into this world and all of the trappings of this world. And so some have the idea, look, we don't know when Jesus is coming, so then it doesn't really matter. Others have the idea, we don't know when Jesus is coming, so let's get out our charts and set a date for his return. I think the healthy response to what we've been considering these last three weeks is this. Look, we don't know when Jesus is coming, and so let's be alert, let's be eager, and let's be ready when he actually does. Amen? Nobody responds. <laughs> I know you can't, but I'm sure you're waving and you're pushing your like buttons right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the ability to come together, quote unquote, in this way, uh, and just your provision. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, heaven and earth will pass away, but not God's word. And we thank you for the truth of it. Lord, that we can establish our lives as a firm foundation upon it. And so, Lord, we do pray that these things we've considered these last three weeks about the end of days and the return of Christ and the victorious establishment of his glorious reign upon the earth and his taking us out of this world, Lord, we pray that it would spur us on, Lord, not only to live pure lives that are heavenly-minded, but also, Lord, to be evangelistic in the lives that we are living as well, because we know that there are many that do not yet know you and that the days are short. So work within us in such a way, like Jeremiah, that the word of God would just burn within us and have to come out of us and use us in the lives of others, in our community, in our nation, in this entire world in which we live. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.